0: Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Good morning. Good morning. So a couple of weeks ago, I decided I'd start reading a classic book, which has been on my Kindle for months and months and months. Um, so I finally got round to start to read it. And it opens with these words. See if you can recognize the book. We were going all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And the book is *Tale of Two Cities* Cities by Charles Dickens. Uh, Those are the opening sentences. I mean sentences which are incredibly relevant to to us today. I think Uh, it was written in 1859. It was set in London and Paris before and during the French Revolution. And I want to come back to that phrase, the tale of two cities, later on. Today we're starting a new series in the book of Daniel, Um, Daniel chapters 1 to 6, the part of Daniel you can understand, and then uh, 7 to 12, you can sort that out for yourselves. Um, Ask Steph. But... uh, Today, I'm going to do an overview of the whole book, and then we're going to just drill into a few verses in chapter 1. So let me give you the historical background first of all. There was a very powerful king called Nebuchadnezzar, fantastic name. Uh, He had built an enormous empire, and he launched three attacks on Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, in 605 B.C., 597 B.C. and 586 B.C. The, the numbers go the other way because it's B.C. Um, and on each occasion there were deportations. So the people in Judah were deported to Babylon... Um, on every occasion. And Daniel uh, and his friends were some of the first to be deported in 605 BC. And this period is known in the Bible as the exile, and the exile lasted for about 70 years. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. If you go back, all the way back to the time of Moses, even before the people of Israel arrived in the Promised Land, uh, God spoke to them in Deuteronomy 30:15 to 18 and said this. He said, "See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply." And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you are not here, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess." So from even before they got into the promised land, God is saying to them, You will you will prosper, you'll flourish here if you keep worshipping me and keep me the, the focus of your attention. Uh, but if you turn away to other gods, then you won't actually stay in the land. You'll be removed from the land. And then later on, many hundreds of years later, we come to the time of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, lived around about sort of 700, 800 years before Jesus. And he lived at a time just before the exile was about to happen. And in Isaiah 39, 5 to 7, we read there, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the king at that time, He said, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, And that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." So Isaiah is predicting, just immediately before this is happening, he is predicting that the people are going to get removed to Babylon, which was hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Uh, The land was really important to them as a nation, and to be removed from the land was a terrible thing. And there would be humiliation, so even Hezekiah's sons, uh, the royal household, would be taken away and humiliated and would serve the king of Babylon in his palace. And so God is using Babylon as an agent of judgment against Israel because they've turned to idols and they've rebelled against him. And while the nation at times broadly worshipped Jehovah, they also frequently went and worshipped other gods. They turned away from worshipping Jehovah altogether for many periods of time. And two of the gods that they worshipped were Baal and Asherah. These were two of the main gods that they turned to, uh, turning away from worshipping Jehovah. And Baal was the god of rain, and Asherah the god of fertility. And so the Israelites, you know, they got Jehovah, the God of, of all, all things, but they also wanted to make sure that their crops would grow. So they would worship Baal. And if their crops grew, then they could sell the crops and they could make lots of money. So I guess ultimately, God was, uh, Baal was like the, the God who helped them make money. And then they also worshipped Asherah, the goddess of fertility. So they wanted to have lots of children to work in their fields and to earn all the money and that sort of thing. And she was worshipped through ritual prostitution. And so money and sex were these two great idols that Israel kept moving towards and away from worshipping Jehovah. And of course, these two idols are still worshipped today, uh, including those that are believers, those that are Christians. We worship the Lord, but there's this uh, tension, there's this tendency to want to worship money and sex, particularly those two things. Uh, and so nothing really has changed enormously. There's still that tendency to want to move away from worshipping God. Now, in various places in the Bible, Babylon Babylon is symbolic of the earthly city, and Jerusalem is symbolic of the city of God. They're in stark contrast to one another. One is placing man at the center of everything, the other is placing God at the center of everything. Babylon had their own gods, but Nebuchadnezzar considered himself to be God. We'll see that in chapter three as we go through the series, where he built a statue. Of himself and demanded that everybody should bow down and worship the statue. And then it becomes even clearer in chapter 4 and verse 30, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So he's looking around this King Nebuchadnezzar and he's seeing everything that he's built in Babylon. It's fantastic city. this royal residence, uh, the temple, all, all the buildings. And he's basically saying, it's all for my glory and for my majesty. He's replacing God. Now this might sound a little bizarre to us, but I think we have a bit of a parallel in our world today. The North Korean Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, was born into a family Uh, And the family, the Kim family, there is a sort of mythology around that family that they're a semi-divine, there's a semi-divine dynasty. And so people in North Korea almost worship him as the supreme leader. And so it's not difficult for us to understand how Nebuchadnezzar, with this enormous empire that he'd built, was so powerful that people felt he was almost God. So they had gods in Babylon... But in a way, the true God was the king, Nebuchadnezzar. It was all about human achievement. It's about what he built and what he conquered. And so he's taking glory for himself. So this is basically secular humanism, uh, which could be defined as a system of thought attached, attaching primary importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Babylon represents life without God in contrast to Jerusalem, which represents life with God. You see the two contrasts. This is the tale of two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city. The city of man in contrast with the city of God. The philosophy that life can be done without any reference to God and the acknowledgement, on the other hand, that we need him in everything we do. It is uh, faith versus no faith. Everything boils down to these two choices. Either you bow the the knee to man, or you bow the knee to God. That's the historical background to this whole book. The battle between, are we going to serve man, are we going to serve God? The tale of two cities. Now, what about the theme of the book, as we look across the whole book? Well, the theme of the book is alluded to in the second verse of chapter 1, chapter 1. It's it's unpacked through the whole book, but essentially uh, one commentary sums it up like this. It's the great and important theme of Daniel is that there is but one God who is Jehovah and he is sovereign over the events of history. So the overarching theme is that God is sovereign over all things. We've been talking about it and thinking about it in worship this morning, how he reigns and how he's sovereign over all things. And that is essentially the, the overarching theme. Of the book. And we see this in various miracles as God demonstrates his sovereignty on behalf of his people. So we see the way that Daniel and his friends in chapter 1 have excellent health despite having a different diet. We see later on, chapter 2, that Daniel is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, We have the incredible deliverance in chapter 3 of the three friends in the fiery furnace, and so on. The stories are amazing stories, and they go on and on through these six chapters, uh, showing that God is sovereign. So God is in charge of history, but on the surface, it looks as if the Babylonian gods are in charge of everything because uh, Nebuchadnezzar has obviously conquered Judah. He's taken all the articles out of the temple. He's taken those uh, gold and silver items and he's brought them back to Babylon and he's put, placed them into the, 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 the temple of the gods that he worships, the Babylonian uh, gods. So it looks like Babylonian gods won Jehovah Nil on the surface. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, we read even there, at the very beginning of the book, it says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So from the very beginning, it's clear that God is in control of all the events uh, that are unfolding. It is the Lord that's put the king of Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon. Now, in the second half of Daniel, which we won't be covering in this series, we find some of the most remarkable prophecies about future kingdoms that are going to come and go. But again, this underlies the fact that God is sovereign and he's speaking through Daniel about what is to come in the future and he's in complete control of the course of history. So God's sovereignty is the main theme, but we'll see some sub-themes as we go through. Uh, an unwillingness to compromise on the part of Daniel and his friends, for example, and the the idea that God is with his people even in times of suffering. Even when these people are displaced to a totally different nation, hundreds of miles away, God is with them in their suffering. Now, the whole book has uh, been structured. You don't necessarily uh, realize this as you kind of just read through it, but it's been structured very carefully. Uh, After chapter one, which serves as an introduction, the book of Daniel has this structure of three main subjects. It has, we've got a slide here. Where are the slides? (laughs) Sorry. We need the slides because it's going to be complicated now. Thank you. Great. Uh, These are the three main subjects across Daniel. So A, a vision of the future. B, sufferings and rewards for God's faithful people. And C, humbling of a pagan king. Uh, Those are the three big subjects that come through the whole book. And as you go through the book, it reverses. So let's go on to the next slide. So in chapter 2, it starts, so A, B, B, C, chapter 2, we have this vision of the overthrow of pagan kingdoms chapter 3, you have the sufferings and rewards for the faithful. And then chapter 4, you have the humbling or the overthrow of the pagan king. And then those, next slide, get reversed. So in chapter 5, you've got the theme C, if you like, the humbling of the overthrow of the pagan king. Uh, Chapter 6, you've got the sufferings and rewards for the faithful. And then chapter 7 to 10, this vision of the overthrow of the pagan kingdoms. Okay, so it mirrors across the book. So let just to give you an idea of the whole structure. Um, now, we're going to look today just at the first seven verses of Daniel 1. So let's get into that, and it should come up on the screen again. Thanks. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance And skilful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competence to stand in the king's palace. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. It's another word for Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief, the eunuchs, gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar initiates a strategy to undermine his enemies by taking future leaders uh, to Babylon and reprogramming them to serve his purposes. I would imagine that Daniel and his friends would have been the equivalent of Oxbridge undergraduates, you know, real high flyers, good family backgrounds, well-educated, future leaders in government, education, industry, health, and so on. And it's a strategy which is still employed today, isn't it? Uh, this was reported on the BBC News website about a month ago. It said, as the war in Ukraine grinds on, the government in Kiev is accusing Russia of kidnapping thousands of children and taking them into Russian controlled territory. Ukraine says Russia is trying to force the children to become Russian. So it's uh, an old strategy that Nebuchadnezzar has established, still being used today. There's nothing new about deporting children from one country to another conquering nation. Similar reports have come out of China recently, uh, where the government has been putting millions of people through a mass vocational education and training program, as they call it, to counter terrorism and alleviate poverty. But human rights groups are saying that at least a million people have been incarcerated in camps, which they describe as re-education centres. So, similar thing today. Nebuchadnezzar was taking some of the best of the young people. Um, He was wanting to reprogram so they forget all about serving Jehovah. He's offering them the best food. They've got to get used to this new diet. Uh, He's wanting them to learn the literature and the language of Babylon. It's an attempt to blot out all memories of their homeland and any thoughts of serving the true God. But the biggest change was their names. Daniel's name, his Jewish name, meant God is my judge. And he gets his name, his name's changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince, and Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. Similarly, Hananiah his name meant beloved by the Lord or Jehovah's gracious. I'm not quite sure which. Different, different ideas about what his name meant. But his name was changed to Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. Mishael, his Jewish name meant who is like God. And then his name is changed to Meshach, who is like Venus. Venus is the Babylonian version of the fertility goddess Asherah. And then Azariah, his name meant, God is my helper. And his name is changed to Abednego, the servant of Nego. And Nego was another one of the Babylonian gods. So they're given new names, which reflect the Babylonian gods. Their original names reflected the, the true gods. Now they're giving names which reference the Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar could change their names, but he couldn't change their hearts. And so the three main themes uh, in the book that I mentioned a lot earlier, God is sovereign, no compromise, God is with us in times of suffering, all three are very relevant to us today. We can look around at what's happening in the world. We can be tempted to think that God has abandoned us. Uh, we can be tempted to feel that God is distant from us. Uh, maybe we feel in, in some ways that you know we're kind of, Struggling like as if we're in exile, That we've got wars, we've got inflation, we've got political instability until tomorrow, maybe. Uh, We've got climate change, we've got food poverty, fuel poverty, the ongoing legacy of the pandemic. It would be easy to wonder if God really is sovereign, wouldn't it? And the book of Daniel teaches us that God is in charge of all things, even if on the surface it doesn't look like it. Christians are constantly being pressured to compromise on a whole range of issues. It's difficult to stand your ground and to firmly but graciously disagree with the prevailing politically correct worldview. But the book of Daniel teaches us that it is possible to do that, but it's not easy. When you're going through suffering, you can be tempted to think that God has forgotten about you. He doesn't care about you. He's left you. If he really cared about you, then things would change in an instant. The book of Daniel teaches us that God is right there with us in the suffering. The story of Daniel is totally relevant to us today. Because we live in a highly secular society, Uh, there's constantly this struggle between humanism and faith, between worshipping man and worshipping God, between loving self and loving God. One commentator said the world is living by its own standards and for its own glory in opposition to God's. The story of Daniel is a story we're living in right now. Someone else said the challenge Daniel and his colleagues faced was assimilation at the expense of loyalty to God and their people. We are constantly being pressured as believers, people of faith, to conform to what the world wants us to do. And so the book of Daniel challenges all of us to consider, are we with Daniel in this? Are we wanting to serve God? Or are we still wanting to serve the world? We, if you like, we were all born into the city of Babylon, uh, but then we got reborn into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, each of us must actively make our choice day by day, whether we're going to serve man or whether we're going to serve God. Jesus made it possible for us to know God through the cross and what he did on the cross. And we've celebrated that this morning through communion. And we just simply need to put our trust and our faith in him. So if at the moment you're not sure whether you're a follower of Jesus, my uh, challenge to you would be just to begin to look towards him and to serve him and to uh, follow him. Uh, Put your faith in him. He's done everything necessary so that your citizenship can be transferred from Babylon to Jerusalem. There's no lengthy application process. It's instant as you put your faith in Jesus. He's done everything necessary for us to be part of the people of God. So have you given your life to Christ? Have you decided to serve Him? Are you with Daniel, if you like? Or are you still wanting to serve the world and uh, to be man-centered? What is your identity? If you're already a believer... Are you going to hold on to that God-given identity in Christ? Are you going to value the Bible? Are you going to keep praying, keep looking to God to do the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or are you going to allow the world to shape you, mold you into a different identity? That's the challenge of the book. It's a tale of two cities, Jerusalem, Babylon. And there is a sense in which, even today, we are people in exile. We live in a, a society that wants to indoctrinate us into its values and its ways. Are we going to be disciples of the world? Are we going to be disciples of Jesus? Who or what is going to define our identity? Is it going to be the world? Is it going to be Jesus? And that's the challenge of this book. Let's pray together. If the band could come through to the front, that'd be great. Sing something to close. Let's pray. First of all, if you you're not sure really yet whether you are following Jesus, I just want to pray for you, Lord. I want to pray for anyone here that's just unclear about whether they're living for a man-centred world or they want to live in a God-centred world, and I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, stir our hearts uh, as we weigh up which way we're going to live our lives. Lord, uh, we just want to build our lives on a good, strong foundation. And certainly the, the world and what it offers is not a strong foundation. But what you offer is secure. So Lord, I want to pray for anybody that doesn't yet know you, was not sure, Lord, that you would really stir their hearts right now, uh, that they would want to follow you. And then, for many of us who already uh, follow you, Lord, help us as we are in a world which is so secular, has such different uh, ideas and values. Lord, help us not to compromise. Lord, help us in those moments when we are challenged, when somebody wants to do something which is against what you want us to do. Lord, help us to resist that tendency for the world to want to shape us and mold us into its own mold. And so, Lord, we want to pray as we go through this book that you would help us to recognize that there are these two ways of living, uh, going with the Babylonian way or going with Jehovah's way, uh, in the world or following God. And, Lord, we want to thank you so much for these stories, challenge us, inspire us, encourage us to keep pressing on with you. They're glorious stories, wonderful stories of God's Faithfulness to people who stick by him and who serve him with all their hearts. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Worthy is the lamb was slain. So...